Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, um, as I said, this will be the, the second um, in uh, these talks uh, that I'm calling uh, Sacred Activism. And I am using that, that term um, from a, um, uh, a, it's an Andrew Harvey term. And uh, I gave a talk, oh, a couple of years ago, I think, uh, by that title. And uh, it was based on this book. I think I mentioned it last week. Uh, this is Andrew Harvey's book called The Hope, the subtitle, A Guide to Sacred Activism. Uh, it's a really excellent book. Um, I'm not going to be going into it tonight, although I've had thoughts about maybe uh, going into uh, some of the principles uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite clear whether I'll do that yet, but I might. But what I did want to do, uh, especially since I'm using that term and um, it's, it's one that has inspired me, is to, um, is to start the talk by playing a, uh, a cut, uh, which I think I played a couple of years ago when I did, um, when I did that talk, uh, by Andrew Harvey, uh, who is this um, quite brilliant mind who has um, um, gone deeply into a number of different spiritual traditions. He was one of the, the main um, co-authors in uh, Sogyal Rinpoche's uh, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, and he also is uh, deeply uh, immersed in um, Sufi practices and Christian practices and um, Hindu practices and uh, writes on all of them, quite, quite a, a brilliant mind, uh, and is very, very engaged um, and very inspiring. So he had this, um, he gave this reading from um, uh, a compilation by Kim Rosen. What was her, her compilation? Is um, Saved by a Poem is the compilation. And it's a six-minute cut, so just kind of get ready, hang out. Uh, first, he reads a poem by Rumi um, called Passion. And then after he reads the poem, he explains what he means by um, sacred activism. Uh, and it's it's been really a touchstone for me as I tried to bring my interest and care about the world um, together with my um, Dharma practice uh, and uh, how they can inform, need to inform each other. So um, we'll start off first with, with that taught, the, uh, that, that reading. And uh, so just settle back, just settle back. 
passion burns down every branch of exhaustion. Passion is the supreme elixir and renews all things. No one can grow exhausted when passion is born. Don't sigh heavily, your brow bleak with boredom. Look for passion, 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 passion. Futile solutions deceive the force of passion. They are bandits who extort money through lies. Marshy and stagnant waters, no cure for thirst. However limpid and delicious it might look, it'll only trap you and stop you looking for fresh rivers that could feed and make flourish a hundred gardens. Just as each piece of false gold prevents you from recognizing real gold and where to find it. False gold will only cut your feet and bind your wings, saying, I will remove your difficulties, when in fact it is only dregs and defeat in the name of victory. Run, my friends. Run far away from all false solutions. Let divine passion triumph and rebirth you in yourself. I believe that the return of Rumi in our time is no coincidence. I think that this tremendous message of passionate, devoted love to the divine and to the creation is the message that all of us, whoever we are and whatever religion we belong to, need to hear desperately, need to be inspired by desperately, because I believe that the world now can only be saved by people who have allowed their hearts to be inflamed by this sacred passion for reality, so that out of this deep, sober, peaceful, wild, profound, sacred passion from reality, we can start to act in what I call sacred activism to transform the planet on every level. When the mystic's passion for God is united with the activist's passion for justice, then a third force is created, which is ignited within the human, released within the cells of the human, and made active within the human. And this is really the core force of sacred activism. So for me, Rumi is the supreme poet of this movement of love in action, and his return to the world's consciousness is a divine gift to us at this moment. A peaceful, illumined consciousness is not going to be enough. A loving, passionate consciousness without wisdom isn't going to be enough. But when peace and passion are married, when illumination and action are married, when prayer and profound activity born out of compassion are married, then what is born is the divine human in action. And it is this birth of the divine human that I believe is the great secret of the terrible and menacing and chaotic death that we are living through. In one of his greatest passages, Rumi says, when your heart is shattered open by heartbreak, what you find in the core of it is a fountain of deathless passion that never runs dry. And this poem, 
is the poem of that deathless passion that never runs dry. And it's that deathless passion that never runs dry that I believe millions of people are now going to find in the middle of this heartbreak that we're going to be put through because the human race is now going through a dark night of the species that is a cosmic global equivalent of that shattering of the dark night that the mystic goes through to end the reign of the false self and begin the reign of the self-devoted in Ishk to the beloved, to the creation, to others. I have lived through a small part of this experience and as I lived through its agony and horror and torment and ecstasy and revelation, it was this poem that accompanied me because it was this poem that held out to me the life beyond the death that I was undergoing. And I think the last two lines have a tremendous message to us at this moment. Run far away, my friends, from all false solutions. Let divine passion triumph and rebirth you in yourself. And to me that means let yourself at last face how absolutely and with what insane intensity you are loved by the beloved. Let the shattering truth of that infinite love triumph over your ego, over your vanity, over your fears of abandonment, over your loneliness. Let that enormous, unconditional, crazy intensity of absolutely, compassionately, passionate love that is streaming from the beloved at all moments, finally and forever, break upon you and irrigate your mind, illumine your heart and saturate the cells of your body so as to rebirth you in your true self your divine human self, your divinized human self, your human self that has realized itself as an instrument of divine love in reality. Hmm. It's uh, it's such for me such a an inspiring um, reading and sharing as it uh, it calls us to get out of our uh, despair or hopelessness or frustration uh, or uh, simple. Um, anger or aversion to get in touch with how much we love life and how much we care and how we can bring a wisdom and a a heartfulness and a commitment and determination to... um, making this a, a better a better world it's a real uh challenge to uh, not just be coming from our old views of oh either i can't do anything or 
there's no hope, and what's the point? Or uh, I can't believe what's happening, and I think I'll just kind of put my head under the covers. Um, it's hard to put your head under the covers these days. This doesn't seem like there's any covers to uh, to put it over, you know, especially with all the intensity happening in uh, both in our country and in the world. You know, and I'm sure we all were affected or moved in some way by um, what happened in Brussels this week and uh, the, the uncertainty and the um, unpredictability of of life that's one of the definitions or uh yeah definitions of dukkha unpredictability or unreliability of of life we just don't know and this kind of ups the ante but when there's so much um fear and hatred as the uh as a reaction that um that we're being often being fed um it's it's hard to stay connected to our um to our practice to the the centeredness and the the wisdom that is um is available to us um so that's what i have been exploring within myself and uh feel like sharing here and as I said last week, I, it's not like I have the answers. Uh, I'm just exploring and seeing again and again, mm. noticing my reactions and seeing how can, I, how can I hold whatever goes on inside in here with, um, mm, with a wider perspective, a wiser heart, and uh, um, whatever I might do coming from that, uh, that, that place. Fear is a, a, a really um, amazing motivator and um, stimulus to contract the mind and have it go in any direction. I was trying to find a, a quote from uh, uh, Goebbels. I, I couldn't find it. The, the propaganda uh, um, master of, uh, of Nazi Germany who said something like, um, all you have to do is, um, is get people frightened enough and find a, a target and um, their minds can be shaped um, in in any direction. So there, there's so many different um, aspects of bringing practice towards uh, towards holding um, world events and being more engaged uh, that that we could explore. Um, but one that's been uh, 
particularly uh, coming up for me this week that I'd like to explore with, uh, with us together um, is the, um, the basic teaching of the Buddhas where he said, um, don't get attached to your views and opinions. See that they're only views and opinions. Uh, we talked some about this last week. Um, he didn't say to abandon your views and opinions, but rather to notice that they're your views and opinions and that um, it's one perspective. Uh, and along with whatever your perspective is, the, the Dharma context is to, uh, as much as possible, do no harm, do no harm and act for the good. But still, you might have a limited viewpoint and limited understanding of what somebody else's uh, perspective is and uh, just be scratching your head and saying, how could they think that way? And particularly what what I've been exploring in my own um, belief system is realizing that I'm just a subject of my conditioning and I can't understand what somebody else has gone through. Um, And in particular where this has been coming up, uh, I mentioned it in passing, I think, um, recently, is... um, Looking at um, at multicultural awareness in a, in a new way in uh, in our community, Spirit Rock and IMS, um, we are uh, just taking a very honest um, look inside at how we might have not been as conscious as uh, we might in our. Um, seeing the predicaments uh, that arise uh, in, uh, in, through diversity and not being as, as uh, welcoming as we ideally would like to be. So we're all uh, the Spirit Rock teachers and um, board members and uh, management uh, are going through some uh, major looking. It's been the, the, the highest priority besides the the building out of the out of the um, community meditation center uh, new um, new uh, buildings project uh, looking at uh, diversity then we're going through a diversity training uh, many of us uh, most of us in the next few weeks and I've been reading some uh, recommended material that uh, um, has been sent to me, uh, along with sent to a number of other teachers, saying, hey, just check this out. Uh, So I wanted to look a little bit through that lens and then maybe broaden it, not just to the diversity issue, but really the issue of humility and thinking that I know the score. And um, looking at my belief 
beliefs. Mm-hmm. One article that um, that was in the newspapers this past week um, that really st- struck me, it was in the Huffington Post that I read it, uh, was about, um, uh, was John Ehrlichman um, talking about the war on drugs. Anybody saw that that article? A couple of people. It was quite an eye-opener. If you remember, if you're old enough to remember, John Ehrlichman and Bob H.R. Haldeman, the Watergate guys, Richard Nixon's top advisors, um, this is from a um, an interview that happened uh, twenty years ago, twenty one years ago. That has just recently come out. <clears throat> he said he died in I think nineteen ninety nine or something like that. But in that interview, he got very honest and said that the war on drugs was created as a political tool to fight blacks and hippies. Um, And this is him talking uh, his words. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying, he says. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Just kind of um, made my... um, made me really um, so sad... Um, you know, in some ways, it's not news, but uh, in another, it was so calculated. And when I see everyone who's um, all the all the people in prisons and all the the homes that have been destroyed with a, a calculated focus on. Um, mm, subjugating a people, it really, uh, it really saddened me tremendously. And one book that I um, was sent is a book called um, Between the World and Me by Tanahisi Coates. And uh, this is what he says. He's a journalist uh, and incredibly articulate it's a book he's writing to his son, and he had been on TV, 
And he said, the host wished to know I felt why I felt that white America's progress, or rather the progress of those Americans who believe that they are white, was built on looting and violence. Hearing this, I felt an old and indistinct sadness well up in me. The answer to this question is the record of the believers themselves. The answer is American history. The American dream, that most gorgeous dream, I've seen that dream all my life. It is perfect houses with nice, with nice lawns. It is Memorial Day cookouts, block associations, and driveways. The dream is tree houses and, cu- and the Cub Scouts. The dream smells like peppermint, but tastes like strawberry shortcake. And for so long, I've wanted to escape into the dream to fold my country over my head like a blanket. But this has never been an option because the dream rests on our backs, black people's backs, the bedding made from our bodies. And then he says, to be black in the Baltimore of my youth, was to be naked before the elements of the world, before all the guns, fists, knives, crack, rape, and disease. The nakedness is not an error, not pathology. The nakedness is the correct and intended result of policy, the predictable upshot of people forced for centuries to live under fear. The law did not protect us. And now in your time, he's talking to his son, the law has become an excuse for stopping and frisking you, which is to say for furthering the assault on your body. But a society that protects some people through a safety net of schools, government-backed home loans, and ancestral wealth, but can only protect you with the club of criminal justice, has either failed in enforcing its good intentions or has succeeded at something much darker. However you call it, the result was our infirmity before the criminal forces of the world. And then another book that I was sent is um, a book called Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. And uh, it's quite a... It's written by a white woman who really wanted to has wanted to do well and and felt felt the cause of racial justice, but hadn't a clue as to her own blindness and whiteness, which is what we're uh, looking a lot at in Spirit Rock white privilege. I'm sure you've heard the the term. And uh, I'll just give you one example of this. Um, This complete unconsciousness. And then we can look at the bigger picture. 
Um, this is about the GI Bill. <clears throat> I remember thinking, hey, my father and uncles talked about that bill and how great it felt to win the war and come home to free education and a housing loan, my father's law school education had been paid for by that bill, my parents' first home had been subsidized by it. In 1975, when Vietnam vets came home to a cruel reception, my father expressed his outrage by contrasting it to the enthusiastic welcome he'd gotten in 1944 and pointed to the GI Bill as proof. But here's the chilling reality about the GI Bill. While Americans, American dream fell into the laps of millions of Americans, making the GI Bill the great equalizer for the range of white ethnicities in the melting pot, Americans of color, including the one million black GIs who'd risked their lives in the war, were largely excluded. Though black GIs were technically eligible for the bill's benefits, in reality, our higher education, finance, and housing systems made it difficult, if not impossible, for African-American GIs to access them. On the education front, most colleges and universities used a quota system limiting the number of black students accepted each year. There were not enough black seats available to allow in the one million returning black GIs, to allow in the one million returning GIs. In addition, many black families already caught in a cycle of poverty from earlier discriminatory laws and policies needed their men to produce income, not go off to school. In the end, a mere 4% of black GIs were able to access the bill's offer of free education. And housing was even worse. Where's the housing? Oh, yeah. Between 1934 and 1962, the federal government underwrote $120 billion in new housing, less than 2% of which went to people of color. America's largest single investment in its people, through an intertwined structure of housing and banking systems, gave whites a lifestyle and financial boost that would accrue in the decades to come while driving blacks and other minority populations into a downward spiral. Discriminatory practices among colleges, universities, banks, and realtors created an impenetrable barrier to the GI Bill's promise, turning America's golden opportunity to right its racially imbalanced ship into an acceleration of its listing. Mm. So just, uh, these are the, the kind of things that I've been hanging out with recently and seeing, gosh, I haven't had a clue. And when I read about um, the, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates's, um world in Baltimore, uh, just, I can't imagine it, 
but now I'm starting to imagine it. I could only imagine, oh yeah, those terrible things happen in those 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 bad neighborhoods. But um, this is not a reality that I've had. And it's so humbling to realize how little one knows. As the Buddha said, um, you only know your reality. And it's important to have uh, your opinions and your, um, your causes. But in that humility to maybe make it a little bit more possible to open up to a reality of people who think very, very differently than you do. And whether it is mm, somebody in uh, across, across the ocean or in, a, in, in radical Islam or somebody uh, at a Donald Trump rally who is really um, fervent and acting with all their best intention, giving their reality, given their reality, um, this is the a perspective that I think the Dharma demands that we see. Not necessarily condone, not necessarily um, not agree with, but to not come from hate, hating that other view or that other person for their view. And this is also what the Buddha said as well, as he, in the simile of the saw that we, we've read here before, even if someone is cutting off, sawing off your leg, um, you might have aversion, <laughs> big time aversion. You might have anger. You might have... Um, uh, tremendous resistance, but hatred. He says, um, "This is this is something to aspire to. Still having compassion in your heart for the ignorance, perhaps behind the mind that would cause hatred or that would cause harm, and the." Um, the pain in the mind, the conditioning of that mind, and letting go of our, um, or seeing through our self-righteousness, particularly, we can let go of the cutting off the leg uh, image for now, but in our, in our feeling so superior 
And so um, arrogant in our um, in our surety that we are uh, we are right in in making somebody else evil. Uh, there's a real humility that um, I find uh, an imperative for us to open up to. And as I, I'm trying to say, and as what uh, Andrew Harvey is, is saying, this doesn't mean to be uh, namby-pamby and say, oh, it's all okay, it's all cool. On the contrary, on the contrary, to have fierce compassion, as I mentioned last week, and to do everything that one can for uh, the greater benefit, or to make this a better world, or to come from love, or to stop the hatred but not stop it with more hatred. Hatred does not cease by hatred, the Buddha said. Hatred ceases by love alone. This is an ancient and eternal law. So this, this idea or this, this attitude of humility, I've just been finding um, mm, uh, a very supportive one that says... I cannot understand, I can only imagine what goes into the mind and the heart of somebody who uh, would do harsh, cruel, hateful things. And I certainly don't want to condone it. And I certainly want to do everything that I can to stop it. But if I have that same self-righteousness that uh, that they might, uh, then I'm in some ways um, no re- no different really. So um, I think I'll stop here and just ask ask us to reflect for a moment, and we can then open it up to a conversation. Mm. Just take a, a, a look inside and, and see what beliefs you might have that are about others with a superior stance. As I, I mentioned that line from Martin Luther King last week, you have no moral authority over those who can feel your underlying contempt. Uh, what belief or stance do you have towards others who sincerely are coming from a place that makes sense to them, whether it's coming from fear or anger, or frustration. And see if you might get in touch with the the self-righteous 
voice inside of you. I've certainly seen it in me many times. And if perhaps you can just suspend it for a few moments and instead turn the heart towards humility that might realize you don't understand the conditioning of that heart or the world view of that mind. And what would it be like to open to them with compassion? What would it be like to let go of the self-righteousness and perhaps see that you only know your own reality based on your own experience. What would it be like to see that perhaps if you were in those conditions, you might think and act similarly. What would it be like to open your heart to them? while doing everything you can to come from a place of wise, sacred action. So we can just uh, open it up. Any um, any comments? Um, yeah. Hi, I'm really glad I, I wasn't here last week, but I'm really glad you've raised this this subject because um, I've been thinking about this a lot. Also. I'm, I'm auditing Robert Reich's wealth and poverty class, and you're, I, you're, Robert Reich is offering, teaching a wealth and poverty undergrad class that I've been auditing, and so I've been learning all about this, and recently about the um, structural racism mm. that has that really limited the black community's ability to accumulate wealth and, and enter the middle class since the, since the end of the Civil War, mm-hmm. but. What I was thinking about yesterday while trying to meditate <clears throat> was that about 30 years ago, 
um, I lived in South Berkeley, and I went to the post office in, in a black, essentially black neighborhood where we lived. And uh, it was Christmas, and I asked for some Christmas stamps. And the woman said, we don't have any. And then the woman right behind me, who is black, asked for Christmas stamps, and she was given the Christmas stamps. And so I said um, at that time, you lied to me. But I've been thinking about now that I'm that having an, a compassionate heart is so important to me, and I, and I believe that if I if I see that person from my heart, that they will feel me and feel my compassion. But I was trying to think: is there? I could not think of anything that I could have said in any way that would not have been patronizing, because I I come to the world with a sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. And I and so I'm. I've been in that dilemma that, like the last few days, like how could I have t- touched her in any way with my heart? And I I haven't been able to find an answer. Yeah, and uh, maybe there isn't an answer. <clears throat> maybe there wasn't one right thing to say. That that's that's the tricky part, you know. You we're, we're sometimes looking for just the just the right response just the just the right key that can open somebody's heart and uh sometimes it's not not possible mm. that's the hard part yeah thank you yeah Eunice. Uh, thank you, James, for talking about diversity. Um, th- this is really interesting topic to talk about, and um, I think a lot of people, when they talk about diversity, they think skin color, race, culture, what people eat, and how they dress, and, and it's actually not that at all. Mm-hmm. It is it is the histories of people, um, and actually giving people the right to actually tell their stories. And when we speak about them, we speak about them from their own perspective. Uh, for example, tonight you use the term radical Islam. That is, a, you, that is a term that is completely inaccurate. There is no such a thing as radical Islam. There is only Islam. And Islam is very clear on matters of killing and war, anybody who knows Islam. So the people who are terrorizing their own people and the rest of the world in the name of Islam, they're not Muslims. And they know it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when, when you say they know it, do you do you think that they all know it, or do some? Oh, they all know. They all know that that if you kill one person, you have killed the entire humanity. The Quran is very clear about that. Mm-hmm. And President Obama has stopped using the term radical Islam. Mm-hmm. When Clinton, when Hillary Clinton speaks, she does not use the term radical Islam. Mm-hmm. So they they refer to them as jihadists, etc. So now. Because that is the narrative that the media, mm. that the majority, is mm. using to refer to a group of people. Mm. And, um, and I think that's, that's where we begin to learn about diversity, mm. is to actually um, uh, refer, tell the stories from the, from the perspective of the people who live them. Um, today I'm feeling particularly very emotional because um, today the International Criminal Court finally took action on on uh, on Milosevic and and convicted him of genocide 
and we have to remember that everybody that was in that genocide was Muslim. <laughs> and, and there is a sense of um, amnesia that happens in the world. And that, that happened in the 90s, and, and we completely forgot about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was actually working for the UN at the time, and I was actually there helping uh, people who were fleeing and people who were hurt, and I almost got killed myself in the process. Mm. And, and today when I listened to the news and I saw that man standing and being told that he committed genocide, it was, I had such a horrible feeling in my stomach, just a horrible feeling. Because when you don't see these things in front of your eyes, you have no idea of the magnitude of what happened. And what happened to the people of, that, of, 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 uh, of Bosnia is terrible. And it's not something that we talk about at all. It's completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just want to give them that space tonight. Thank you. How many, tell, tell us, how many people died in that genocide? Eight million people. Let's just take that in for a moment. Thank you. And thanks for for the work that you were doing. And I really... I. In, in your sharing, and you've shared before, I, I, I really respect um, what you, who you are, and what you've done in the world, and um, really welcome your your comments and perspective. Thank you. So I got a smaller scale question for you. So mm-hmm. w- little, when, when I closer. hear a lot of this... A little closer to you. Sorry, okay. Maybe not bad, no, acting too bad. So I hear a lot with this, especially about the views and how obviously we're all a product of our view of our own experiences and and how much of this seems to be that a lot of these views are, fe- are viewed by fear. So whether you're, you know, like at the extent you would use the Trump supporter who is fear that their, that their quota, quote, quota of life is being threatened, mm-hmm. they're reacting to that, just like I would say that that's happened time and time again when we look at history. And so the question that I have right now, because I felt you made this very, very insightful point about you're not necessarily agreeing with someone's opinion, but you're acknowledging it and you're being with it. And so I've got a colleague who's African-American, and her son, I think, is, is starting to come out as transgender, and she and her husband, one is Catholic, one's Baptist, and she's having a very hard time on how to, to be okay with, not necessarily be okay with it, but how to even interact with her son as he is having this experience. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just would love to hear anything that you have as far as, as maybe even tools, because we're not sitting there necessarily saying to, saying to her, like, you have to accept that, that you agree with this, but how can you separate out him as a person versus this aspect. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's part of like the same thing with when we're looking at these other people of these significantly different views than this, is how are we able to separate that part out so that we don't bring the anger and resentment towards them or towards the situation. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wish I could wave a, a magic wand and, and say, oh, uh, can't you see uh, who he who he is? 
underneath your your filter, um, and it doesn't work that way. It's, I mean, I think the key is having the intention to, and, and nobody can make this happen for somebody else, but when somebody has the intention to open up the heart, then the mind will, will follow. But if the mind is too contracted because of its conditioning, then um, the heart might not yet be ready to open. And it's so sad, you know, I, when, I, when I look at my, my own conditioning 40 years ago uh, around things that frightened me that just seem just so, uh, you know, just afraid of my own possible latent homosexuality. And now it's like, it's a, it's a, non, it's a non-issue. It's kind of looking back saying, what was, what was that all about? Um, but I can see in my own self, it was scary to think that I might be gay or someone else was gay and um, and so it it takes it takes a while to just after a while you see through the, this mind that distorted that distorts reality and oh of course they're just a human being like I am especially somebody that you've loved like your son how painful it is to to lose connection with that that loving that was the essence of your relationship and probably until they're ready to to reconnect with that love it'll be hard for them but when they do things can change quickly so unfortunately Nobody can make that happen. It's more a matter of their own, and their own wrestling is probably part of that whole process as well. You have to go through that wrestling and see through your conditioning uh, and just see what really is important. So I hope for everybody's sake that they, that they can do that. And in the meantime, you can just be there as a loving, understanding, compassionate presence without making anybody wrong, but just uh, helping them get in touch with their hearts, what's true. Thank you. Any last comment before we close? One last one, yeah. Uh, When I was growing up in an upper-middle-class environment in San Francisco, everyone was just like me. There were no black people. There were no people from other countries. Um, and I remember in the early days of, of the, the early gay parades and the coming out movement and all of that, they would say, well, if, you know, if you would just know a gay person, if you would just get to know a gay person, you would see that they were just like you. Mm-hmm. They have families mm-hmm. just like you. Yeah, and now I feel like 
I mean, I've corrected that in my own life, you know. I know a black person, I know. And it, it really does help you overcome those obstacles mm-hmm. if you really have a heart-to-heart and you get to know that person and what their lives are like, what mm-hmm. their daily lives are like. And I'm feeling like this, like in this environment that we have, I, it, it's very complex social issues, of course, and um, international issues. But I would like to get to know a Muslim person. Mm-hmm. So I would like know what kind of life they have, what they think mm-hmm. about, what their worship mm-hmm. is like, what, you know, would help broaden my view and my community, make my community mm-hmm. richer and mm-hmm. so forth. But I always, I've always thought that it was a good principle. If you could just get to know somebody who you think is different from you, yeah. you may not be that different. Mm-hmm. I think it's a yeah really important point. Once once it's more than just a part of a group, but a human to human, yeah, it's all about us and them and breaking through that. Yeah, thank you, thank you, and I hope you do get to know a Muslim. You know, maybe there's some way that we can start to. Uh, make connections <clears throat> that would be good okay let's let's uh, close with some loving kindness thank you for your attention oh and here's um, let's see so you might think of anybody that you want to include in your own metta and send them good wishes And then open it to all the people in the world who are feeling disconnected, oppressed, and then include the ones out of their own confusion that are acting from hatred or ignorance. May all see clearly. May all share their love well and know the highest happiness. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much. Have a good week. See you next week.